Hello, I'm Linda Descano with Habas Red, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the latest episode of our Red Sky Fuel for Thought podcast. In this episode, we tackle trends in climate and sustainability disclosures and reporting with Ryan Keyshaw, who is a partner with H Advisors Maitland, a global strategic advisory agency that is also part of the Havas Group. Our conversation touches on how two landmark laws, specifically the European Union's Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, which takes effect in early 2024, and the State of California's Climate Corporate Data Accountability Act, also known as SB 253, are having a ripple effect on the broader climate and sustainability landscape well beyond the marketplaces that they regulate. Ryan, welcome to the Red Sky Fuel for Thought podcast. I think this is your first time joining us. It is. Thank you so much, Linda. Long time fan and really glad to be on the show. You know, 2023 has marked another year where all things sustainability, ESG, purpose, climate have been in the spotlight with continued, if not increasing scrutiny over whether brands and businesses are actually following through with their pledges, particularly around their net zero commitments, whether there are you know real data, their actionable plans behind those pledges. And we've also saw a lot of focus by politicians on the area of climate and sustainability more broadly, almost associating it with certain ideologies rather than something that was just made sense and was good for the overall health, well-being of the planet, the economy, and so forth. So I thought we could start our conversation today by asking you to break down for us the current state of sustainability, climate, ESG disclosures, and reporting requirements. So maybe you could start by giving us the 30,000 foot view of the current landscape. Well, that's a nice, easy question to start it off, isn't it? (laughs) I'm going to try and answer it a slightly different way, but answer your question. I think if you're a multinational company, you've got to look at things in a certain way. You are going to be in more than one jurisdiction and you've got to really apply throughout your company processes what the toughest jurisdiction is going to do. So at the moment, I would say it's probably the EU with the upcoming CSRD, where you have to really put forward a transition plan and you have to report against your scopes one, two, and three carbon emissions. So, you know, for people who are not okay with that, reporting on your operations, how much emissions come from your operations, reporting on your energy that you consume, whether that be from renewable energy, or whether the electricity or gas you buy to power your operations. And then finally, which is the most, the hardest is scope three, your upstream and downstream supply chain. So everyone who supplies you and where your product goes or or your impact when it leaves your operations. Scope three, I think a lot of people use scope three on business travel and, and that's how they get their head around it. But it's so much more than that. So I think really, if you're a multinational, it's looking at that challenge of really carbon emission reporting. And I think Lots of people are aligning to the EU because it is the, it's a large market, obviously, and also it has the strictest regulations come out. I think there are other factors at play here, which we can get into a bit further along, like which is really market sentiment and market 
invest what investors need and that is more data uh, and then that's only ever going to increase and that's to attract capital and attract capital at preferential rates that's why a lot of reporting and disclosure is coming this way and frameworks are evolving and really becoming more standardized so you know there's gri there's sasb there's tcfd have been around for ages but this year we've really seen the issb stand up and come forward with showing how it's going to merge and standardize and align to some of these standards and frameworks to supply a consensus across the market. So I hope that answers your question. I think if you're just a US-based company, there are separate ideas coming forward. All eyes are still on the SEC and it's much delayed climate disclosures rule. However, earlier this year, only a few months ago, actually, California has set down a state law which has implications across the US. So I think in a nutshell, that's where we are from a regulatory and standards global perspective when it comes to just a top line view. When you talk about the new requirements and the level of data and transparency investors are now expecting, I mean, that's a major difference from perhaps where we were three, five, 10 years ago, is there's been this ongoing shift in employee interest an expectation around a company's climate and broader ESG portfolio, it's certainly become more of an issue with customers. And I think the now that it's on top of mind from investors, whether it's from a risk standpoint, right, or a opportunity, right, top line revenue opportunity, it's bringing it more into focus and driving some of the standardization across the industry in terms of what types of messaging, right? How do you talk about this? How do you measure it? And it's elevating the attention as people want more verification for what they're doing. And it's also changing, I guess, because it is now has broader financial implications. It's carrying more weight about what do I say, right? And can I really prove what I'm saying? I think you've hit the nail on the head there, really. So I think non-financial reporting, non-financial risk has become financial risk. That is really, the two are related. So most people's non-financial reporting comes from a, an ESG strategy, which is with most mature companies has developed within their company strategy. So to take in a point, climate risk, for instance, the reason this has got such a big push on it in data, because climate risk has become financial risk. You just have to look at the insurance market in the US pulling out of not renewing new policies in California, for instance, because of wildfires in Florida, parts of Florida, because of the hurricane risk. So climate change risk has become financial risk. I think what's really interesting here is that once you start down this route of disclosure, it being about risk, especially for investors, and, and that is just one small stakeholder group that we're talking about here, but, but it is a key driver of market forces here and in, in investor need. It's only going to get more and more detailed and we're going to go deeper and deeper. So I, I made the point earlier about climate risk and carbon emissions. For quite a lot of time, people just did scopes one and two because they could easily account for that from their energy bills and really accounting for what they're doing with their operations, which they probably already had a lot of data for. I think now scope three is coming in and that's really been the challenge. That's where you see the most pushback, but you also see the most opportunity in most companies working towards, including large private equity firms with their huge portfolios. So, but the general trend, really what we're seeing is, is something I see in reporting and disclosures is you've always had your mandatory 
reporting. And that goes back to the days for listeners in the US when they've had to produce a 10K PSEC with listings of violence. I think you lots of people always had voluntary reporting, and that could be from anywhere towards talking about their gender breakdown to even a bit of case studies, really, of what they're trying to do and, and how they're doing that. And that really verges into the marketing and the PR bit. But I think there's something also in between those two, which we call a voluntary, which we're seeing much more. I love that space, voluntary, because I think you sort of touched on this in your opening response and that when you're a multinational company, you have to think about the full portfolio, the full spectrum of standards that as a, a company that you have to meet and look at what is the most right versus least stringent to some degree, but to your customer or consumer, whether it's a business or an individual, they may not differentiate. Why are you talking about this area with one level of detail in this area, but not globally? Where's the consistency? And so being able to build that coherent story and really be strategic and also looking at what your competitors are doing, because you may not operate in Europe, but if you overlap and compete with some European companies that do, it may cause employees or customers to question, why aren't you giving the same level of detail on these efforts? Again, you're absolutely spot on, Linda. I think how we define voluntary is having to do something because your peers are or your peers request it. To give a really good example for our listeners in the US who don't have any regulation at the moment, although that is coming in from California and the effects that that huge economic state can have across the whole of the US. Not many people know, but there is a law at the moment with US federal contracts. So if you have a US federal contract between any department or government agency, that could be from defense to health, it could be with the EPA, it could be with parks. So you, you, you could supply each government department with their paper for their photocopy or their inkjets or something. If that contract goes over $50 million, you have to report your scope one, two, and three. Now, this will have something like a trickle-down effect. So you might not necessarily have that contract. You might be a small firm in Ohio that doesn't go into Europe, that doesn't have international boundaries. And then suddenly you are the big supplier to that photocopier ink supplier that goes in and does it, has the contract with federal US. You will suddenly have to supply your scope one and two. And they'll want to know increasingly more, maybe your scope's three. So then it has this kind of spiderweb effect of going across. So that's where we're really seeing voluntary at the moment. I mean, I, I was called up by a client based in the Midwest and the sole purpose of them wanting to do reporting and, and move into this area was because of customer pressure. And it really comes down to a procurement level and they would lose contracts. So that would really hit them in their business. So voluntary is, is, is really a key driver in all of this. Talk a little bit about the new law in California because if I read it correctly, it's not just about your operation in California per se, but it really could set a new standard in the state. Could you break that down for us? So this is a really interesting one. This is State Bill 253. And this was introduced by the Democrats. They actually tried to introduce it last year and lost by one vote. So we could see that it was coming this year because California had some form of midterm elections and, and more Democrats came in. So the states become more progressive. I think anyone looking at California and 
things like the mansion tax as well, which just shows how the way the state is is leaning to these social and environmental legislation. So what does State Bill 253 do? So all the details aren't, it's been passed. I'm going to give a bit of a caveat because it's now going to a body within California. They're going to have to work out how to implement it. But the broad basis is by 2026 or 2027, depending on your size, any company with over a billion dollars of revenue globally that touches California, I believe by $1. So it's just a touch of California. That's how it is at the moment. We'll have to report its scopes one, two, and three carbon emissions to be able to operate within California. So you can see how it has that kind of effect across the US and also globally. California is due to be the fourth largest economy in the world, and it's just too big for businesses to ignore. Now, I have heard that there will be a fine being in place, and they don't know how that fine will work, how much that will be in staggering it. And they believe that because this affects both public and private companies, a lot of private companies might take the fine for a few years to test the water. Then they don't know how the fine is, but I think this is all pure conjecture at the moment. But whatever's going to happen in California, it's got the full backing of the governor. He signed this off. You know, and how does California's law compare with the European reporting standard? Is the framework for reporting on scope one and two and three, the definition, the same definition? Are they based on a global body or are they defined differently? Because that must be another issue that can complicate reporting. I think I'm going to take a higher view on this because I think actually if you're doing your scopes one, two, and three, and you're doing it in a legitimate way where it where it's been it's had third party verification or some kind of auditing process, the laws will stand in, in both ends of it. I think where it differs in the EU is that you have to give a transition plan. Whereas under the California law, you won't. But as we know, I think the same principles there, when you start reporting, you start producing emissions. So I think that's the only added extra CSRD in the EU where you have to supply that transition plan as well. It's not just enough to disclose your emissions. The other thing that, as I reflect, there will be certain legal requirements about reporting, right? And whenever you have a law, it carries the risk of a fine or potentially, right, a lawsuit. So introducing new sources of risk. But then as you also touched on, Ryan, Many companies talk about and report on their climate or emissions reduction targets and activities as part of their quote-unquote non-financial reporting, right? An annual ESG report, or some companies call it a corporate responsibility report. And if what they're reporting under the EU or California laws isn't consistent with what is in these other reports, that opens up another potential area for risk and challenge to their reputation, right, to their their commitment. So how will these new reporting and disclosure standards change, you know, what companies talk about in other forums or on their websites about climate and potentially other ESG areas or, or won't it? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. There's a lot to unpack there. I'll start first with fines and maybe the differences in regulation, because I have quite a good view on this. And, and I know a little bit more about the EU because it's been set in stone. When the law comes into effect, which I think is by 2026, 2027, it's going through EU Parliament at the moment. If you do not comply with it, 
you could face a fine of 5% of your global revenue. So when I talked to Midwest companies, I spoke to two of them and they said, yeah, yeah, but we're waiting for the SEC. We don't have to do anything in the SEC. I said, you are captured by this law. The law is captured by revenue of 50 million euro in the EU, which is not much if you're a large company. And I think quite a lot of general counsels, a lot of CFOs, um, lots of chief sustainability officers, maybe less chief sustainability officers have been less worried about CSRD until they realized about that fine. I calculated it for one client and it came to something like 640 million US dollar fine. So then suddenly, this brings me on to my next point, climate risk and non-financial reporting risk is financial risk. We're seeing more and more ESG reports being merged into annual reports, talking about the whole strategy, because say if you're a large company and you need to transition, there's huge capital expenditure needed. For instance, to transform a fleet. And you really need to make that case as part of your strategy and your transformation strategy, and it needs to be at the heart of this. Now, to go to your point on different regulations and different laws and different jurisdictions and them not matching up, I had a view on this. I spoke to two lawyers. One was actually very high up, used to work in the SEC. And my point to them was, if you followed CSRD, the most strictest law here, and you complied with everything, would that see you through the rest of regulations to come? And their view was, hmm, we don't like to say this, but pretty much yes, because you're complying with the strictest thing and, and you will generally be covered, although you should look at it and do tweaks. So I think generally, because non-financial disclosures, especially in climate, are quite a global phenomenon, they've been developed globally, you're following frameworks, as long as you follow them and show your wording and really then look about the regulation at the end. I'm not sure there'll be that much challenge or contest. As you think about corporate readiness, <laughs> you, know, you talked about some conversations and you know some perceptions that, oh, this really isn't as material, right? We could sort of test the waters with fines or maybe it won't apply the way we think. And as you put that hat on, since we were in the communication industry, how would you assess the readiness of chief communications officers, chief marketing officers, and to understand the implications of these new disclosure requirements in the broader conversations, content, communication that they create on behalf of their organization? That's a great question. I think actually there's been a movement now where there's been a slight pause and I want to kind of, on talking about ESG and I kind of want to come to that. Lots of people attribute this to maybe an anti-ESG movement. I don't. I, I kind of want to talk about trend. So about three or four or five years ago, we had lots of a huge burst in ESG communication. I think we've both seen that, haven't we, Linda? And I think the real reason for this was is because lots of companies were making ambitions and were really coming out and making a statement and really going forward. I think what's happened now is that we've moved from the ambition stage to commitment. And with commitment comes more scrutiny, more data, more moving on. So I think now everyone's like a bit hesitant to be caught out for being challenged and having more scrutiny of the statements they make. So I think it's not that everyone's rowing back from ESG or not doing ESG. I just think people are becoming more considered. So I attended the in London yesterday, the Loan Markets Association. Now, someone pointed out, which I thought was really interesting, sustainable finance volumes in the last five years have gone up 15 percent 
some of the products in finance that were labeled sustainable now wouldn't be labeled sustainable because they're so mainstream and they've had more scrutiny on them. Does this mean we're moving away from sustainability and the principles and the general movement, especially in the environment? No, but it just means there's more scrutiny and there's less label and less communications of those. So I think another good example of that is in the UK. I'll, I'll give an example. There's a well-known bank was talking about all of its uh, sustainable finance and products it offers. And they were fine because they didn't put it in context of actually they finance oil and gas. And I think we've also seen this in the oil and gas industry where they're talking all about renewable energy because it's a good story, but they need to now put that in context and say, this makes up 15% of our global energy output or something like that. We hope to get to 50% by 2030, 2040, whatever it is. So I think things need to be more considered and they need to be put in context. Because the elephant in the room here and the words that I've avoided choosing to last is greenwashing. And I think with that scrutiny, we are going to get more accusations of greenwashing. But is it because of an anti-ESG movement? I would say not. I would say it hasn't stopped it. It's been a loud noise, but the movement's still going forward strong. And that's just seen by the figures and all the data and the increased disclosure we're seeing from companies. I really like what you said about context because that applies in so many areas of, of business and activity, whether it's about DEI or climate or community investment and development, it's put it in the context of something bigger or put even to connect it back to what your ambition was and the progress that you've made and what is not working. I think it goes back to what we hear from employees and customers is to be humble and provide the background and people are willing to accept that you may not have hit a target, but say why, and then what are you doing to address it and move forward? You know, in terms of some of the noise that has been led by politicians in some markets, as companies are more measured and perhaps what they say publicly or how they engage in some of the broader political debates, are you seeing more business coalitions and associations step into the conversation? So rather than make this about company X, it really, you know, where the business community is talking about why this is important to them, to the economy as a group, as we've seen what the business roundtable has done in the states around stakeholder capitalism. Is that something that you're seeing more of or expect to see more of in 2024? That's a really good question. I think it's different in different jurisdictions, and I think it's quite a polar opposite. We were at a conference in Ireland recently, and I had it yesterday in London. I mentioned I was at the Load Market Association's uh, Sustainability Conference, and uh, business groups are actually calling for regulation, especially around the finance sector, because actually at the moment they're saying, Everyone wants different things. If we have regulation, we can just all follow something. And I think that's the same really in the US to a certain extent, whereas everyone's waiting for the SEC. The SEC is probably the most powerful regulator in the world. I think what has really caught American businesses by surprise is Europe and the fact they now have to apply to a really strict regulator environmental issues. Now, to come back to the US Chamber of Commerce, and I know that Gavin Gensler, for instance, the, the chair of the SEC, had a breakfast meeting with them two weeks ago, talking mainly about this upcoming book. There is always going to be an argument, especially in the US, over cost and efficiency and time for businesses. 
I think this goes back into the wider debate in the US about short-term gain over long-term impact and gains that we need to transition to new economies. Now, why is this argument really specific to the US? I think I can hopefully have a little bit of a better view, not being American, being British, that Americans, you land at JFK and you're in a taxi and you talk to a taxi driver and they will tell you all about the latest stocks and shares. The, the huge retail investors and the huge emphasis in America for just quick profit and really everyone bought into these processes is not really the same in the other around the world where our pension funds are really passive funds. They're, they're out of our reach. I used to work in government at the Department of Work and Pensions. If you told me now, I bet you don't know where all your money is put. I'd have a rough idea, but I, would, I wouldn't know. So lots of people, it, it's really out of their hands. But in America, everyone's so invested in it. They watch stocks. We just saw the greatest part, and the eye for me was the Robin Hood documentary about uh, GameStop. You know, you just see this movement that is you don't find in other markets. So there is a pressure for short-term gain that does gain traction where it doesn't in other markets. And I think that's where ESG and the name ESG becomes a bit toxic in the US in some quarters. To go back to what I've said throughout this podcast, do I think it's changing the movement from increased disclosure, increased transition? No, I just think maybe we have a comms problem with the term ESG. As we think about how demographics are shifting, right, generationally and the importance that issues around climate have, particularly for, for Gen Z, it then, as the the demographics of the retail investor base in the States changes, that can bring on a new pressure is more, you know, value attached to what a company is doing. So it also, from a communication standpoint, is to the degree companies can connect with retail investors and why this is in the best interest, right, for the stock and balancing short-term and long-term. So that definitely is is one of the things that brand communicators and marketers can begin because their employees are retail investors. Many of their customers are retail investors. So it takes on a, a broader significance, but probably isn't top of mind as we're thinking about communications. So I want to be conscious of our time. I thought we could close um, since we are looking rapidly to 2024. Is there maybe one piece of advice you would share with the brand marketers and communicators about how they can stay ahead of this evolving reporting landscape and the implications it has, not just on the financial disclosures, but on how they engage with their employees and their customers and communities where they operate around ESG and climate? Yeah, you've raised a really good point there. And I think we focused on investors really in this podcast, but actually I think employees and communities and customers are essential to any business. I think actually the more we go and it's, it was talking about attracting the best talent when it comes to retaining that talent and the same for customers, attracting and retaining customers. I think you have to really say more about what you're doing, what your values are. And customers will actually go in there and look at this disclosure. But I think my number one piece of advice would be to, when you do an annual report or an ESG report, pull out case studies, pull out what you're doing and put it in a really accessible way to let these people know. It isn't just an investor audience. Use it on your website, make it part of your main strategy and let them be able to make those informed choices. People want to see you have a long-term plan. 
people don't want, uh, and all the consumer trends show this. I know that we have a meaningful brands survey at Havas and, and that, that says that exactly the same. I don't know the statistics off the top of my head as well as probably you do, Linda, but those trends are there. So my recommendations would be place everything in context. Don't oversell, but don't undersell. I think there's a lot of green hushing at the moment. Be bold, stand behind what you're doing and really think about your audience groups outside of the investor audience and how the best way to communicate to them in a factual way is. Perfect way to end this. Ryan, thank you so much for joining our podcast today. And I hope we can bring you back once 2024 is underway so we can talk about how these trends are evolving and the implications it has for marketing and communications more broadly. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much for having me, Linda. You too. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. You can subscribe to the show using your favorite podcasting app, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Please don't forget to rate and review the show to let us know how we're doing. We hope you'll join us again for more of the latest communications insights and trends from the team at Havas Red. We'll see you again soon.